Chapter seven and eight of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Ortsy. Chapter seven. A warning. Sir Percy bowed very low, with all the graceful flourish and elaborate gesture the eccentric customs of the time demanded. He had not said a word since the first exclamation of warning, with which he had drawn his friend's attention to the young girl in the doorway. Noiselessly as she had come, Juliet glided out of the room again, leaving behind her an atmosphere of wild flowers, of the bouquet she had gathered, then scattered in the woods. There was silence in the room for a while. Deroulade was locking up his desk and slipping the keys into his pocket. "'Shall we join my mother for a moment, Blakeney?' he said, moving towards the door. "'I shall be proud to pay my respects,' replied Sir Percy. "'But before we close the subject, I think I'll change my mind about those papers. If I am to be of service to you, I think I had best look through them, and give you my opinion of your schemes. Deroulade looked at him keenly for a moment. Certainly, he said at last, going up to his desk. I'll stay with you whilst you read them through. La, not to-night, my friend, said Sir Percy lightly. The hour is late, and madame is waiting for us. They'll be quite safe with me, and you'll entrust them to my care. Deroulade seemed to hesitate. Blakeney had spoken in his usual airy manner, and was even now busy readjusting the set of his perfectly tailored coat. <laughs> perhaps you can not quite trust me laughed sir percy gaily i seem too lukewarm just now no it's not that blakeney said deroulade quietly at last there is no mistrust in me all the mistrust is on your side faith began sir percy nay do not explain i understand and appreciate your friendship but i should like to convince you how unjust is your mistrust of one of god's purest angels that ever walked the earth Oh, that's it, is it, friend Deroulade? Methought you had forsworn the sex altogether, and now you're in love. <laughs> Madly, blindly, stupidly in love, my friend, said Deroulade with a sigh. Hopelessly, I fear me. Why hopelessly? She is the daughter of the late Duc de Marny, one of the oldest names in France, a royalist to the backbone. Hence your overwhelming sympathy for the Queen. Nay, you wrong me there, friend. I'd have tried to save the Queen, even if I had never learned to love Juliet. "'But you see now how unjust were your suspicions.' "'Had I any?' "'Don't deny it. "'You were loud in urging me to burn those papers a moment ago. "'You called them useless and dangerous, and now—' "'I still think them useless and dangerous, "'and by reading them would wish to confirm my opinion "'and give weight to my arguments.' "'If I were to part from them now, "'I would seem to be mistrusting her.' "'You are a mad idealist, my dear Deroulade. "'How can I help it? "'I have lived under the same roof with her for three weeks now.' I've begun to understand what a saint is like. <laughs> and twill be when you understand that your idol has feet of clay, and you'll learn the real lesson of love, said Blakeney earnestly. Is it love to worship a saint in heaven, whom you dare not touch, who hovers above you like a cloud which floats away from you even as you gaze? To love is to feel one being in the world at one with us, are equal in sin as well as in virtue. To love, for us men, is to clasp one woman with our arms, feeling that she lives and breathes just as we do, suffers as we do, thinks with us, loves with us, and above all, sins with us. Your mock saint who stands in a niche is not a woman if she have not suffered, still less a woman if she have not sinned. Fall at the feet of your idol as you wish, but drag her down to your level after that, the only level she should ever reach, that of your heart. Who shall render faithfully a true account of the magnetism which poured forth from this remarkable man as he spoke, this well-dressed foppish apostle of the greatest love that man has ever known? 
and as he spoke the whole story of his own great true love for the woman who at once had so deeply wronged him seemed to stand clearly written in the strong lazy good-humoured kindly face glowing with tenderness for her Deirdre felt his magnetism and therefore did not resent the implied suggestion anent the saint whom he was still content to worship a dreamer and an idealist his mind held spellbound by the great social problems which were causing the upheaval of the whole country he had not yet had the time to learn the sweet lesson which nature teaches to her elect the lesson of a great a true human and passionate love to him at present juliette represented the perfect embodiment of his most idealistic dreams she stood in his mind so far above him that if she proved unattainable he would scarce have suffered it was such a foregone conclusion Blakeney's words were the first to stir in his heart a desire for something beyond that quasi-medieval worship, something weaker and yet infinitely stronger, something more earthly and yet almost divine. "'And now shall we join the ladies?' said Blakeney, after a long pause, during which the mental workings of his alert brain were almost visible, in the earnest look which he cast at his friend. "'You shall keep the papers in your desk. Give them into the keeping of your saint. Trust her all in all rather than not at all.' and if the time should come that your heaven-enthroned ideal falls somewhat heavily to earth then give me the privilege of being a witness to your happiness you are still mistrustful blakeney said desrolets lightly you say much more i'll give these papers into mademoiselle marny's keeping until to-morrow chapter eight and Mier. that night when blakeney wrapped in his cloak was walking down the rue ecole de medicine towards his own lodgings he suddenly felt a timid hand upon his sleeve Anne Mier stood beside him, her pale, melancholy face peeping up at the tall Englishman through the folds of a dark hood closely tied under her chin. "'Monsieur,' she said timidly, "'do not think me very presumptuous. I—I I would wish to have five minutes' talk with you. May I?' He looked down with great kindness at the quaint, wizened little figure, and the strong face softened at the sight of the poor, deformed shoulder, the hard, pinched look of the young mouth, the general look of pathetic helplessness which appeals so strongly to the chivalrous. "'Indeed, mademoiselle,' he said gently, "'you make me very proud, and if I can serve you in any way, I pray you command me. But,' he added, seeing Anne Mie's somewhat scared look, "'this street is scarce fit for private conversation. Shall we try and find a better spot?' Paris had not yet gone to bed, and these times it was really safest to be out in the open streets. There, everybody was more busy, more on the move, on the lookout for suspected houses, leaving the wanderer alone. Blakeney led Anne Mie towards the Luxembourg Gardens, the great devastated pleasure ground of the ci-devant tyrants of the people, the beautiful Anne of Austria, and the Medici before her. Louis the Thirteenth and his gallant musketeers all have given place to the great cannon-forging industry of this besieged republic. France, attacked on every side, is forcing her sons to defend her, persecuted, martyrized done to death by her she is still their mother la patrie who needs their arms against the foreign foe england is threatening the north prussia and austria the east admiral hood's flag is flying on toulon arsenal the siege of the republic and the republic is fighting for dear life the tuileries and luxembourg gardens are transformed into a township of gigantic smithies and anne Mie, with scared eyes and clinging to blakeney's arm cast furtive terrified glances at the huge furnaces and the begrimed darkly scowling faces of the workers within the people of france in arms against tyranny great placards bearing these inspiring words are affixed to gallows-shaped posts and flutter in the evening breeze rendered scorching by the heat of the furnaces all around 
Farther on, a group of men squatting on the ground are busy making tents, and some women, the same Magiras who daily shriek around the guillotine, are plying their needles and scissors for the purpose of making clothes for the soldiers. The soldiers are the entire able-bodied male population of France. The people of France in arms against tyranny. That is their sign, their trademark. One of these placards, fitfully illumined by a torch of resin, towers above a group of children busy tearing up scraps of old linen, their mother's, their sister's linen, in order to make lint for the wounded. Loud curses and suppressed mutterings fill the smoke-laden air. The people of France, in arms against tyranny, is bending its broad back before the most cruel, the most absolute, and brutish slave-driving ever exercised over mankind. Not even medieval Christianity has ever dared such wholesale enforcements of its doctrines as this constitution of liberty and fraternity. Merlin's law of the suspect has just been formulated. From now onward, each and every citizen of France must watch his words, his looks, his gestures, lest they be suspect. Of what? Of treason to the Republic, to the people? Nay, worse, lest they be suspect of being suspect to the great era of liberty. Therefore, in the smithies and among the groups of tent-makers, a moment's negligence, a careless attention to the work, might lead to a brief trial on the morrow and the inevitable guillotine. Negligence is treason to the higher interests of the Republic. Blakeney dragged Anne away from the site. These roaring furnaces frightened her. He took her down the Place de Saint-Miquel, towards the river. It was quieter here. "'What dreadful people they have become,' she said, shuddering. "'Even I can remember how different they used to be.' The houses on the banks of the river were mostly converted into hospitals, preparatory for the great siege. Some hundred meters lower down, the new children's hospital, endowed by citizen deputy Desrelaides, loomed, white, clean, and comfortable-looking amidst its more squalid fellows. "'I think it would be best not to sit down,' suggested Blakeney, "'and wiser for you to throw your hood away from your face.' He seemed to have no fears for himself. Many had said that he bore a charmed life and yet ever since Admiral Hood had planted his flag on Toulon Arsenal, the English were more feared than ever, and the Scarlet Pimpernel more hated than most. "'You wish to speak to me about Paul Desrelaides,' he said kindly, seeing that the young girl was making desperate efforts to say what lay on her mind. "'He is my friend, you know.' "'Yes, that is why I wish to ask you a question,' she replied. "'What is it? Who is Juliette de Marny, and why did she seek an entrance into Paul's house?' "'Did she seek it, then?' "'Yes, I saw the scene from the balcony. At the time it did not strike me as a farce. I merely thought that she had been stupid and foolhardy. But since then I have reflected. She provoked the mob of the street willfully, just at the very moment when she reached Monsieur Desrelais' door. She meant to appeal to his chivalry and called for help, well knowing that he would respond.' She spoke rapidly and excitedly now, throwing off all shyness and reserve. Blakeney was forced to check her vehemence which might have been thought suspicious by some idle citizen unpleasantly inclined. "'Well, and now?' he asked, for the young girl had paused, as if ashamed of her excitement. "'And now she stays in the house, on and on, day after day,' continued Anne Mie, speaking more quietly, though with no less intensity. "'Why does she not go? She is not safe in France. She belongs to the most hated of all the classes, the idle, rich aristocrats of the old regime.' Paul has several times suggested plans for her immigration to England. Madame de Relade, who is an angel, loves her, and would not like to part from her, but it would be obviously wiser for her to go, and yet she stays. Why? Presumably because— Because she is in love with Paul, interrupted Anne Mie vehemently. No, no, she does not love him. At least—oh, sometimes I don't know. Her eyes light up when he comes, and she is listless when he goes. 
She always spends a longer time over her toilet when we expect him home to dinner, she added, with a touch of naive femininity. But if it be love, then that love is strange and unwomanly. It is a love that will not be for his good. Why should you think that? I don't know, said the girl simply. Isn't it an instinct? Not a very unerring one in this case, I fear. Why? Because your own love for Paul Desrilades has blinded you. Ah, you must pardon me, mademoiselle. You sought this conversation, and not I, and I fear me I have wounded you. Yet I would wish you to know how deep is my sympathy with you, and how great my desire to render you a service if I could. I was about to ask a service of you, monsieur. Then command me, I beg of you. You are Paul's friend. Persuade him that that woman in his house is a standing danger to his life and liberty. He would not listen to me. Oh, a man always listens to another. Except on one subject, the woman he loves. He had said the last words very gently, but very firmly. He was deeply, tenderly sorry for the poor, deformed, fragile girl, doomed to be a witness of that most heart-rending of human tragedies, the passing away of her own scarce hope for her happiness. But he felt that at this moment the kindest act would be one of complete truth. He knew that Paul Desrelais' heart was completely given to Juliette de Marny. He, too, like Anne Mier, instinctively mistrusted the beautiful girl in her strange, silent ways, but unlike the poor hunchback, he knew that no sin which Juliette might commit would henceforth tear her from out the heart of his friend, that if, indeed, she turned out to be false or even treacherous, she would, nevertheless, still hold a place in Desrelais' very soul, which no one else would ever fill. "'You think he loves her?' asked Anne Mie at last. "'I am sure of it.' "'And she?' "'Ah, I do not know. I would trust your instinct, a woman, sooner than my own.' "'She is false, I tell you, and is hatching treason against Paul.' "'Then all we can do is to wait.' "'Wait?' "'And watch carefully, earnestly, all the time.' "'There, shall I pledge you my word that Desrelades shall come to no harm?' "'Pledge me your word that you'll part him from that woman.' "'Nay, that is beyond my power.' A man like Paul Desrelades only loves once in life, but when he does, it is for always. Once more she was silent, pressing her lips closely together as if afraid of what she might say. He saw that she was bitterly disappointed, and sought for a means of tempering the cruelty of the blow. It will be your task to watch over Paul, he said. With your friendship to God and protect him, we need have no fear for his safety, I think. I will watch, she replied quietly. Gradually he had led her steps back towards the Rue Ecole de Médicinae. A great melancholy had fallen over his bold, adventurous spirit. How full of tragedies was this great city, in the last throes of its insane and cruel struggle for an unattainable goal! And yet, despite its guillotine and mock trials, its tyrannical laws and overfilled prisons, its very sorrows paled before the dead, dull misery of this deformed girl's heart. A wild exaltation, a fever of enthusiasm lent glamour to the scenes which were daily enacted on the Place de la Révolution, turning the final acts of the tragedies into glaring, lurid melodrama, almost unreal in its poignant appeal to the sensibilities. But here there was only this dead, dull misery, an aching heart, a poor, fragile creature in the throes of an agonized struggle for a fast-disappearing happiness. Anne Mier hardly knew now what she had hoped when she sought this interview with Sir Percy Blakeney. Drowning in a sea of hopelessness, she had clutched at what might prove a chance of safety. Her reason told her that Paul's friend was right. Desrelades was a man who would love but once in his life. He had never loved, for he had too much pitied. Poor, pathetic little Anne Mier. Nay, why should we say that love and pity are akin? Love, the great, the strong, the conquering God. 
love that subdues a world and rides roughshod over principle virtue tradition over home kindred and religion what cares he for the easy conquest of the pathetic being who appeals to his sympathy love means equality the same height of heroism or of sin when love stoops to pity he has ceased to soar in the boundless space that rarefied atmosphere wherein man feels himself made at last truly in the image of god in chapter seven and eight